0: that's where rolling resistance comes in and the science does seem to support uh, wider wheels and wider tires being a benefit
1: that triathlon show episode 74 Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of that Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, we talk cycling science. I interview Stephen Chung, who edited the book of the same name, and we go into the science of a variety of topics related to cycling and triathlon, like different cycling body types, bike fitting, aerodynamics, rolling resistance, pedaling technique, cadence, pacing, strength training and more. This episode is sponsored by Precision Hydration. They offer electrolyte drinks in different strengths up to three times stronger than traditional sports drinks because everyone loses a different amount of sodium in their sweat from around about 200 mg per litre up to as much as 2000 mg per litre. I personally use their 1500mg per litre strength for preloading before events and in the events themselves and in long training rides for example I use the 1000mg per litre version and I know this is my strength because I took their free online sweat test on precisionhydration.com which I link to down below in the show notes so go check that out it takes just a couple of minutes to do that. If you want to buy any other products, including electrolyte drinks and more, use the discount code that triathlon Show" all one word, and you'll get 15% off. Alright, so I know that last episode I said that today's episode would be a Q&A, but actually I just interviewed Steven and uh, talked to him and it was so good that I just had to fast track it and get it out to you guys as quickly as humanly possible. It's a long interview so I actually split it in two parts and today is part one and you'll hear some of the topics mentioned above. The rest of them will be in Monday's episode which is part two. Just to quickly introduce Stephen. Stephen Chung is a PhD and he holds a Canada Research Chair at Brock University. He's the co-author of Cutting Edge Cycling and more recently, as mentioned, he is the co-editor together with Dr. Mikel Zabala of this year's big ultimate nexus of science and performance, as it says on the cover, Cycling Science. He has also been the training and fitness editor for uh, pezcyclingnews.com since 2002 and is the chief sports scientist at Baron Biosystem with the software platform Exert, and he has consulted with world champion cyclists and cycling manufacturers on several different sport performance projects. So there's really nobody better suited to talk cycling science than Stephen. So let's get started. <music> Stephen Chang, welcome to that Triathlon Show.
0: Thank you, Michael. Very happy to join you.
1: I'm very happy to have you. We've uh, been discussing for uh, quite some time now about uh, this interview and actually another interview as well that we have coming up. But this one is about your book, Cycling Science, which is uh, a big one. Can you describe the background of that book? What uh, made you write it and, and what is it about?
0: Uh, it is a really big project and, uh, it started out, I guess, in 2012 with my first book on cycling science of called Cutting Edge Cycling that I wrote with Hunter Allen, the U.S. based cycling coach. And, uh, and then in about, about a year or two after it came out, um, we decided to... Human Kinetics, the publisher, and I decided to go, in a sense, even bigger and better and really develop almost an encyclopedia of cycling science knowledge. And it is really comprehensive. It's 40 chapters on a really wide range of topics. And we partnered with my co-editor, who is... Dr. Michael Zabala. He's at the University of Granada in Spain, and he's also the sports scientist for the Movistar Pro Cycling Team. So, obviously, very uh, well-versed in the field of cycling, both living and breathing it as a scientist and as a as a sports scientist with Movistar. So, together, we tried to pull in uh, as wide a range of topics as possible and tried to pull in through our various contacts as many real experts in the field as we could so we start this project probably in about late 2013 early 2014 and it's been you know a lot of work uh, getting these these chapters together and It came out this past summer and we're quite happy with the result. Yeah,
1: I've just been skimming through it. I got uh, a copy of it just a few days ago and so I haven't had the time to to read it just yet because as you say, it's uh, it's a big one. But it looks like... the encyclopedia that you'd like on on cycling and and uh, i really really look forward to digging into that we've uh, discussed a bit on what sorts of topics from it might be the most interesting for this triathlon audience and the first topic that i want to get into is uh, the cyclist's body and uh, the question about some key uh, anthropometric and physiological characteristics for cycling or characteristics characteristics that predispose people to being good cyclists perhaps
0: yeah i think um, first off is i think uh, even though it's called cycling science and not triathlon science obviously it's geared towards one sport of road cycling but i think it has huge applicability many of the chapters um, to triathletes and um, and we'll talk about them over the course of the interviews but in terms of the cyclist physique, and we had Paolo Manespa and Franco Impelizieri write this, and Paolo has done a lot of work during his PhD on uh, specifically on cycling research, everything from pacing strategies through to, uh, again, tracking world level cyclists and their power outputs. And I think the really interesting thing is that in triathlons and in cycling, uh, there's something to fit everyone. Uh, there is no necessarily one optimal body type. And there certainly can be if you are trying to break down into specific disciplines such as in road cycling. If you really want to be a climber and if you're 85, 90 kilograms, you're not going to be world-class or it's going to be extremely difficult for you to be world-class. Whereas if you want to be as fast as possible in a time trial over 40 kilometers and you are 60 kilograms, chances are that you're not going to be again at the world level but at the same time you can still be enjoying the sport one of the things manaspa and impelizari talk about there is really how to quantify different physiques so for example if the goal and many triathlons is really based about aerodynamics and a time trial where there may not be drafting and also at the um at the level where there may be climbing, but most of the triathlon courses tend to be tend to be flatter. Um, it's really not an advantage to be big, to be a relatively bigger individual, and because one of the things they point out is the it's not necessarily about the power to weight ratio, which is true for climbing, but it's more about power for frontal surface area and a, a larger individual their surface area isn't proportionally that much bigger than a smaller individual and that really helps explain why a bigger individual can be very strong in a flat time trial where the main priority is absolute power output on the one hand and minimal surface area so uh, whereas a climber it's really about not necessarily the absolute power but really about the weight. So that's an example of what we understand and go through in that chapter on the cyclist physique.
1: Perfect and uh, the next question and topic that I want to go into is bike fitting. So let's start with uh, the actual science of bike fitting because there's a science and an art to it but what do we know from the scientific perspective?
0: Yeah, those are really interesting topics and there's, there is that absolute melding of both science and art when it comes to bike fitting. And one of the real challenges that is pointed out in the chapters on biomechanics of cycling and also the science of bike fit is, is, um, you know, the difficulty of really teasing an individual components such as crank length out, um, and just studying that in isolation. And for example, most of the research that has been done looking at crank length suggests that there's no real benefit in terms of power output or anything like that. We usually think of of a longer crank being useful for increasing the leverage and whereas a smaller crank you can accelerate it faster. I mean that's the general attitude and um, but the in terms of absolute power output the studies that have been done have shown that there's really minimal difference in terms of the absolute power that you can generate with either a short crank or a tall crank. Now one of the difficulties, as I said, was with scientific design. It's very hard. If I am used to, for example, a 170 millimeter crank, and that's what I've been riding for a long period of time for years, let's say, and I suddenly switch to a 165 millimeter crank, um, you know, and I only use it for you know the testing session in the lab. I haven't really necessarily adapted my body to it. So even if there are acute differences that we may see in the lab, the body is really, really adaptable. And and after a few weeks on a different crank size, your body is probably going to compensate for it. So I think the main message from Rodrigo Bini's chapters on the science of bike fit and the biomechanics is to date, the science of it, in a sense, really isn't there. There's no proof that, uh, as long as you're in a relatively moderate uh, setup, you're not at one crazy extreme or the other. Uh, tweaks within that is more about fitting you anatomically to the bike rather than maximizing, you know, kind of efficiency or power output. So, that's kind of the main message of that and then what we have in a chapter by todd carver who helped to found the retool fit system he really lays it out in terms of going from start to finish from both a road cyclist and also for a time trial triathlete focus um, the different concepts and how to go about attaining the best fit personal fit possible So I think the main message is that there is an overall, you know, general rules of thumb are good as starting bases. And then from there, the focus really should be on accommodating an individual and their optimal fit.
1: Got it. So let's move into aerodynamics. And this is a topic that uh, could be discussed for hours and hours. (laughs) We've actually had a couple of episodes on on this podcast on the topic. So let's maybe not uh, spend too much time on it. But you had an interesting... a really good example, actually, uh, that uh, I referenced in a, an email com- conversation from the book about the relative importance of uh, aerodynamics, rolling resistance, and gravity, and how it changes depending on terrain. So can you elaborate a bit on, on those three and, and what the relative importance of each is?
0: Certainly. The, um, you know, again, when we're talking about the frontal surface area is really kind of, key overall in terms of how much air you're pushing so that is in many senses the holy grail to minimize that aerodynamic frontal surface area and that can be with the bike in terms of its shaping, in terms of the wheels, in terms of the clothing but also really 80% of it more or more is the body itself so you want to get into the best fit that you can as a triathlete that's going to minimize your surface area now the trick to that is really balancing that with being able to be in a really low drag position yet being able to generate the power Uh, it's very easy to to minimize and uh, minimize the surface area But the trick really is, can you still generate power with it? So going back to the previous example of uh, when we're talking about bike fit and my discussion on crank length, I mean, that's where, for example, the trend is now for a lot of triathletes is to uh, because of the really forward uh, bike position and their focus on minimizing the surface area. They want to get as low as possible, but uh, they find it really hard to have a large or a long crank because it's forcing the hips to close a lot and have a really acute angle and you can't really generate power with it. So, In order to improve the ability to generate power and minimize the stress on the body at an extreme range There certainly has been a trend towards going towards lower or short Sorry shorter crank lengths so that you can maintain a relatively open hip angle uh, Even in a very aerodynamic tuck and also to decrease the strain for the running segment afterwards so that's frontal surface area, and then the other area is rolling resistance. And uh, we were really hoping when we had the the book outlined to have a separate chapter on wheels and tires. But the challenge with uh, the overall you know book to begin with was, in a sense, getting people to to uh, spill their trade secrets. So we approached a lot of manufacturers about with tires and wheels about writing a chapter and also some pro teams and their sports scientists to write about um you know wheel choice and tire choice but none of them wanted to really give their competitive edge away so uh so we don't have as much unrolling resistance in the book as i would have liked or michael would have liked and but certainly the trend is towards wider tires and wider wheels to have more volume and, um, and to actually have less rolling resistance when your tires are wider. So that's where rolling resistance comes in and the science does seem to support uh wider wheels and wider tires being a benefit and then the last one is really gravity it's um it's where does the trade off for aerodynamics and weight come into it the challenge with a lot of aerodynamics such as really deep dish wheels is uh besides worrying about crosswinds and stuff is their added weight and yeah, at what point does the added weight become more of a penalty than than uh, an advantage and the answer to that really comes in the speed that you're going at and also the grade so if you're really really fit and elite level triathlete who is going doing their time trial segment their bike segment at 40k an hour or or faster then aerodynamics really play a huge huge role and you can get away even with a rolling course where there's some hills up and down with focusing on aerodynamics more whereas if you're an age group triathlete where you know you might be averaging let's say 35 kilometers an hour or or lower uh, for your bike split then aerodynamics become a little bit less of a factor and weight can become more of a factor. So it's a constant balancing act between uh, the speed that you're going at and also the the uh, elevation profile in your particular course. And then the uh, third angle, I guess, is also draft legal and, and uh, no drafting triathlons. If it is a uh, a draft legal triathlon where you can be spending a lot of time sitting behind your opponents or in a group, then aerodynamics doesn't necessarily play as big of a role compared to if you're in a no drafting situation where you you are hitting the wind the entire distance and their aerodynamics become again critical because there's no one breaking the wind for you except yourself.
1: Yeah, I have uh, several follow-up questions and points on this. First, you have uh, a really nice chart in uh, the book. It's uh, figure 9.2 for the interested listeners with uh, the relative influence of the gravity, rolling resistance, and uh, aero drag at uh, 300 watts on either... A flat grade or a two percent grade or an eight percent grade, and uh, so on. A flat grade, the graph shows here that uh, it's ninety percent or so at uh, of the uh, of the forces that you need to overcome comes from the uh, drag and ten percent from the rolling resistance. That's uh, again at three hundred watts. So that's uh, if if we're talking about a longer triathlon, that's that's your elite uh, elite guy. But but still, it gives you an indication. Whereas on the 2% slope, the uh, contribution of aerodrag and gravity is pretty similar, it looks like uh, from uh, this graph. And uh, yeah, and rolling resistance uh, stays roughly the same. Whereas at the 8% slope, the uh, gravity is almost—it's ninety percent of uh, of the forces that you need to overcome. So that's uh, to give the listeners some some numbers. Again, uh, keep in mind that that's at a three hundred watts effort, and if you're uh, not putting out that much, or your power doesn't translate to speed, then the aerodynamic component will be a bit less. But uh, still, as you said, uh, it's uh, quite significant. You mentioned there that uh, the actual the body itself. Uh, is 80% roughly of the, or causes 80% of the drag. So does that mean that really the first thing to focus on when it comes to investments is uh, getting a bike fit that allows you to both be aerodynamic, but also apply power and that any other like components is secondary to, to getting that bike fit or what, what's your take on, on that or, or the takeaway point for for the listeners?
0: Sure. Let me backtrack a bit to explain more of that graph on Figure Nine Point Two, and the uh, you know when it when you say at a two percent slope or an eight percent, I don't want listeners to think, oh, if there is one hill on there that is 8%, then I should throw out all my aerodynamic stuff and just go for lightweight. You also have to see the overall profile, right? If it is really 95% flat, and then there is one 8% hill for a kilometer, I would still go for a maximizing the aerodynamic and not emphasizing the weight as much because it's going to be such a short proportion of the course whereas if it is an ups- uphill time trial the entire way at 2% or at 8% then yeah I would really focus on the weight also so you also have the balance of of the um, you know what kind of the profile actually looks like and not just think oh there's one hill and therefore I have That's really short, but because of that, I have to throw away all the aerodynamic gear. Um, To get back to your question about the... uh, Sorry, can you remind me of the question again?
1: Okay. Yeah. So, so the original question was that uh, you mentioned that eighty percent of uh, the aerodynamic drag is caused by the rider itself and uh, rider themselves and uh, their body, and not the bike and the component. So, does that mean that we really should focus on getting that good uh, setup, the a good bike fit that combines aerodynamics with with allowing us to produce power? And anything else like getting those aero wheels and uh, a helmet or whatever it is, is secondary really to that bike fit. Or what's your take on that?
0: Yeah. The priority I feel absolutely is an optimal bike fit for a couple of reasons. One is to maximize that aerodynamic advantage and minimize that frontal surface area. And the second is just for your long term. Health and prevention of injury, and for example, again, if we just arbitrarily try to go for the most extreme uh, aerodynamic position possible, slam that stem as low as possible, um, you know, get the elbows as narrow as possible, and just do it on a random basis, you know, we may be extremely aerodynamic, but we can be setting ourselves up for long-term uh, injury issues, especially because in a time trial, it's all about staying in that aerodynamic position as long as possible. So I would absolutely agree. The number one thing for any cyclist to do or triathlete is to uh, get an optimized bike fit and that's going to help you so much in terms of long term because you can train harder and you're going to get faster as a result because of that the the next priority uh, again it really would depend on on your finances but also on on the type of racing you do, is probably to invest in a either an aerodynamic helmet, a time trial-specific helmet, or a good set of really aerodynamic wheels. And because those are the next two biggest things that are going to be hitting the wind, when you think about the difference between a super... Um, kind of ventilated very airy helmet but which isn't really optimized for aerodynamics when most of the time that's one of the first things hitting the wind as you are riding a time trial the importance of an aerodynamic helmet even though it seems relatively small on one hand it plays a huge role because it is the f- one of the very first things that's hitting the wind and then after that, it it is probably a set of aerodynamic wheels, and again, you are constantly playing playing around with what kind of riding you are doing. If you're primarily doing a lot of uh, draft legal races, where it may be on inner city circuits where there's a lot of twisting and turning, then aerodynamics again doesn't necessarily play as much of a role, and where. That lightweight of accelerating a wheel uh, may be the better, better choice. So it really depends on the the type of racing you do but i would definitely say that bike fit is number one and then anything kind of on your body that can help reduce aerodynamics is or improve aerodynamics would be number two and then balance that with the kind of racing that you do what kind of a uh, wheels you choose and uh, getting
1: into that draft legal for racing for a little bit, what is the benefit of uh, sitting in with a with pack? How much less power do you have to produce?
0: Well, the, the main thing to think about is that bike racing, professional level bike racing or amateur uh, bike racing, the entire sport revolves around being able to sit into a pack it plays such a huge role on on the entire tactics the strategy of it so you really can't overemphasize the difference between a uh being able to sit in in a group versus being able to being having to ride solo in the wind the entire way um there's a couple of things numbers that are generally thrown about and which have largely been validated that if you are sitting in in the middle of a pack let's say you are up at the front and you're riding at 300 watts you're the one breaking the wind at the front and you're going at 300 watts and then the guys that are probably two or three riders behind you buried in a in a pack they're probably riding at about 210 watts they're saving about 30 percent of the energy and because there is minimal wind hitting them so there's minimized aerodynamic drag and most of the resistance comes through rolling resistance and also gravity and so there's a huge huge slipstream effect. Anyone who has ever tried motor pacing uh, or even when you have a truck or car pass you as you're riding along you know knows that feeling yet you're just able to accelerate so much more and maintain a much higher speed. So you're saving about 30%. And even if you are in a, in a, uh, a no drafting triathlon where you're about to pass an individual that, you know, the rules, I believe, are five meters that you have to stay behind. But depending on the speed, you can still get a little bit of a draft even at five meters and you can use that to your advantage if you are passing someone to really pass at that five meters and accelerate in that slipstream to get that little bit of slingshot effect so yeah there's a huge huge improvement in in uh the ability to draft and it certainly plays out in the average speed that you can maintain if you think Uh, you know, 40 to maybe 45 kilometers an hour for a very fast bike split on a uh, no-drafting triathlon as opposed to, you know, at the Tour de France, for example, on average, even with all the mountains over the course of three weeks, they're averaging 40 kilometers an hour for the winners for the entire race. So it's pretty astounding the impact of being able to draft. So in a draft legal triathlon, this is where I think a book like Cycling Science and some of the, some of the tips in there in terms of pack riding, in terms of being able to ride comfortably in a pack plays a huge, huge role because if you are not comfortable riding behind another person on a wheel very closely, then you're going to be losing that, that little bit of aerodynamic benefit and you're going to be expending more watts and more energy than then uh, you need to. So the key is really to... Be comfortable in that pack environment, to be able to you know, place yourself in the correct spot knowing where the wind is going to be so that you're maximizing your energy efficiency throughout. So this is certainly an area where I think so many triathletes can benefit from uh, is that comfort of being able to ride in a pack and being able to be comfortable in that kind of close quarter environment.
1: Definitely, and you can feel it even if you slip behind just a little bit, let's say that you slip from that 30 centimeters to the next wheel to 80 centimeters, there's a clear difference in in how much you need to do work, so stay tight on those wheels. It
0: it is, and... and there's there's so much uh, like little tips that you can learn from from riding with a good kind of group of road cyclists about how to do that. It's not just a simple matter of saying, well, you know, stick tight to the wheels. There's so many little tricks of just being able to relax where you're gonna look, um, you know, as you are in that close quarter environment to both be safe yet keeping a safe distance from the wheels. So there's lots of little tricks I would encourage all triathletes to really get out with a good group of road cyclists and really to learn that it is just such a valuable skill
1: and uh, just one thing that you mentioned there in in non-draft races it's usually 10 or 12 meters depending on what race and if it's age group or elite but uh, there has been in recent times more races that have been going at least on the professional side to even 20 meters because even at the 12 meter draft zone there is an aerodynamic benefit so so that's that one one more follow-up uh, about the things that we've been talking about so far was uh, when we talked about rolling resistance and i actually was asked once what's uh, the ideal tire pressure to put in my tire and i couldn't give a i i couldn't give a satisfactory answer to my, myself i just know kind of what i usually put in but i don't know a lot about that so uh, what do you can you go into tire pressure is uh, what should we think about with tire pressure?
0: I've over the last I guess 10-15 years I've gone lower and lower in my own tire pressure and part of it is because I've started racing cyclocross a lot which is where the whole emphasis is on as low a tire pressure as you can get away with and so we may be running on our 33 millimeter tires we may be running anywhere from 22 25 psi something ridiculous like that but i remember when i started racing uh, back in the 80s and the tires were 20 millimeters or so and i had them up to 120 psi all the time and for the longest time i thought well you just need your tires to be as hard as possible because that's going to minimize rolling resistance and i've certainly learned over the last 15 years or so that you know i actually want to be going with lower and lower pressure because uh, most of the roads that we ride on are not necessarily perfect smooth if you are riding on a velodrome on a track where the surface is really really good then yeah you want to have really high tire pressures to minimize that rolling resistance. But as soon as we get onto the normal roads that we ride on where it may be really rough and chippy and anytime the tire is is kind of bouncing off of the ground, you are not really being able to maintain forward, uh, kind of torque on the tires to move yourself forward. So you're really slowing down anytime your tires are bouncing off of the ground. So that's one consideration. And most tires are really meant to to have that little bit of deformation of about 15% or so uh, kind of diameter drop when They, when the rider is on it and that's really to allow the tire casing to conform to the ground and you're going to get a much more comfortable ride out of it. You're going to have that You have less beating on your body after a long bike leg, and you're also going to have better grip. You're going to have that little bit extra surface area. The tire casing is able to better conform to the ground, and uh, so you're going to get better traction both in a straight line and also in a corner. So, you know. i'm 64 kilograms and again i started with 120 psi and now i'm at the stage where i ride set um, 25 millimeter tires and i regularly go about 75 psi in the front and 80 on the back and uh, i'm much happier for it Th- that's when you go
1: out on the road yes uh, you mean not cycling okay wow yeah i read that that's the direction that some studies seem to be going like i read about maybe 90 and so which is low compared to what many including myself put in their tires i've maybe been at the 100 psi range or so and and then i read i think it was silka that did uh, did a study which uh, was pretty pretty good uh not a peer-reviewed study or anything, but but it was uh, it was well done in my opinion, and 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 that's where I think I read about eighty-five to ninety. But, but what you're saying here is uh, really low. Of course, uh, your weight is also low, so so that affects it. But interesting. Mm-hmm. So something to to keep in mind. Don't necessarily put too much uh, too much air in in your tires.
0: No, you're just going to get so much more chattering kind of uh, vibration. And that's really one of your main points of of um, kind of vibration control and suspension is your tires. It's not necessarily your frame. Your frame is designed to be really stiff. So if you also have super stiff tires, then you're really going to be riding a jackhammer.
1: So there you go. I hope that you enjoyed that interview and that you're looking forward to part two, which will be released on Monday. You can find the show notes for this part of the interview on thattriathlonshow.com. Again, I want to remind you that there was a time when the www version wasn't working, but it's now working. All the different ways to type in thattriathlonshow.com in your browser should lead you to the right page. So check that out. It's also linked up in the show notes in your podcast app if you just scroll down to the show notes wherever you have them. I want to ask you once more to help me out to reach my goal of reaching 105 star ratings and reviews for that triathlon show within 2017. I'm almost halfway there, but really, to be honest, I'm not currently on track to achieve this goal. I know that enough people listen to the show to easily get to that benchmark. Easily, easily. If even a small percentage that haven't already done so, take a minute to leave a review So please go to scientifictriathlon.com forward slash rate and that will help you unless you already know how to rate and review the podcast, of course. Thank you to Precision Hydration for sponsoring this episode. Check out their blog. There's a new post up on how to minimize alcohol's effects on your waistline, which is a different kind of hydration, shall we say, from what they usually do. But uh, this post may be appropriate with the holiday season soon upon us. And if you buy any of the Precision Hydration products, use the discount code Show. all one word, all caps, for 15% off. Thank you, as always, for listening. I really, really appreciate it. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.